gathered, we looked at the theme, how Jesus was in the power of the Spirit. The power of the Spirit was in Jesus. If you remember in chapter 4, he's in the wilderness where the Spirit leads him. And then prior to that, we were reminded of his baptism when the Spirit descends upon him. And then <clears throat> we looked at Mary and Elizabeth and how the Spirit moved them as Jesus was conceived and as Mary carried him. And so today we pick up where we left off last week. But today Jesus is not only in the Spirit, but he is also in the face of adversity. He is in the face of resistance, of rebellion. And so today we read that his own townspeople reject him. So Jesus preaches and teaches, he heals, he casts out demons, he restores sight to the blind. Not only in the Spirit's power does he do this, but he also does it in the face of adversity. Have you ever wondered if Jesus knows your thoughts? Perhaps you have thought something that you shouldn't have thought, <laughs> something corrupt or evil or immoral, and you respond to yourself, gosh, I sure hope Jesus didn't know I just thought that. <laughs> well, if you haven't thought that before, now you will, right? <laughs> and if you think you're out of the woods, I hate to burst your bubble. But what we find out today is that Jesus knows. <laughs> he knows everything you think, everything you feel. He knows everything about you. And we can try to hide ourselves from Jesus, but it doesn't work. Jesus knows the thoughts of your mind. And he knew the thoughts of the people that were around him, his disciples and his friends, the townspeople. In verse 23 of our reading for today, Jesus says this, You will undoubtedly quote me the proverb, Physician, heal yourself, meaning do miracles here in your hometown like those you did in Capernaum. He is not saying this off the cuff. This is what they are thinking, but not speaking. Come on, Jesus. This is your hometown. Show us your stuff. Give us your best stuff. Come on. This is, this is where you grew up. We helped form you. Start your healing. Kind of like the race car. Start your engines. Let's get going. Jesus knows, Jesus knows what we think. And he knows when our thoughts are receptive to him and he knows when our thoughts are resistant to him. And he knows 
that the Nazarene town people were thinking, do that Messiah stuff right here, right now for us. Me first. I, as I thought about this, I thought of how I try to be an accommodating person. You know, if I'm at a buffet or a meal, I try to make sure that everyone else can go first before I get in line to get some food. When I am working with a devotional group, I try to make sure everyone has had an opportunity to share. So I think of myself as an accommodating person. Until I get behind the steering wheel. (laughs) And then for some reason, there's this second nature that says, I got to get in line first. These cars are going way too slow. It's obviously January around here. (laughs) And so I speed forward and I try to squeeze in earlier. So much for accommodating, right? The townspeople, they saw Jesus as a very powerful prophet. And they saw that he had uncanny ability to heal people, to cast out demons, to help blind people see. And that's what they wanted. But they wanted it for them first. This is what the Nazarenes were thinking. But Jesus is trying to be really clear here. He started it last week and now he continues it this week. He's trying to be very clear with us that his mission from God as the Messiah, his mission is for all people. For all people. Not for certain people first. As a matter of fact, back in verses 18 and 19, which Alex shared with us this morning in the children's message, it it tells us that the spirit of the Lord Jesus said is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. There's that spiritual anointing. He has been anointed to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me, Jesus, to proclaim the captives, that, that the captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. We hear clearly what Jesus' mission is. These are references from Isaiah chapter 61 and chapter 58, and they reference how God is bringing good news to the poor. So Jesus isn't the first one to bring this issue up. He's quoting it in relationship to his identity, but he uses Isaiah. Isaiah was telling the people centuries before that God was coming, but he was going to help the poor first. He was going to be with the lowly. And so Isaiah did not have a great record either of being received 
And so as he proclaimed this word from Isaiah, Jesus' mission is not to the me first crowd. His mission is to those who have no claim of special status with God. You see, some, some people have more influence and more power in relationships just because of who they are. It's not based on what they've done, nor is it based on what they need. It's solely because they have a special relationship with someone. So like when I was in high school, some of you have heard me share this story before, I remember getting pulled over by a police officer. He was a very good police officer. He pulled three of us over at the same time. Uh, we did have a red light at the bottom of the hill. So, um, so he pointed all of us to the side. So we went over and turned over and went to the, uh, the parking lot of the old liquor store. And uh, then he proceeded to start with the first car, wrote them out a ticket. Then he went to the second car. That person got out and he had him get back in and he wrote him a ticket. And then he came to me and he came to my window. And he asked for my license, and he goes, oh, Steve. See, he knew my parents. And he said, you know, I know you didn't really mean to do this, so I'm just going to let you go. Now, did the prior two drivers get that? No. I got, I got off. I got off with a warning because... I had power and influence that the other two drivers didn't. It still did not impress my father when I told him I had a warning. <laughs> Sometimes this is how we relate to God. We believe we have a special relationship with God, um, and so we want to take advantage of it. Uh, we might even manipulate it, you know, towards our own favor. But now with Jesus. What Jesus tells us is that God will be, God will be available for all people through Jesus. And the Nazarenes, they know where this is going. And it's heading down the wrong track. It's a train on the loose. And so... If Jesus is going to care for the poor and the lowly and the blind and the sick and the widows and the orphans, if, if Jesus is going to be caring for all of these people first, what about us? Now my reaction, which is probably why I'm a pastor, would be to stop and listen to the people, try to soothe them, explain, you know, that... You know, there's some greater needs than ours right now. We just got to wait. and uh, That's not Jesus. <laughs> Which is kind of refreshing for me to be reminded that I'm nothing like Jesus. <laughs> In case I ever think I could be. You see, what Jesus is saying to them is you guys are just not getting it. So let me be a little more clear to you so you can really get it. So he talks to them about 
these two great prophets, Elisha and Elijah, and how they demonstrate how this sort of mission for which Jesus has been anointed was their mission as well. So now we not only have Isaiah, now we have Elijah and Elisha. Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 17, let's take a look at that. I'm going to read from verse 8. This is the story of the widow of Zarephath. Then the Lord said to Elijah, Go and live in the village of Zarephath, near the city of Sidon. I have instructed a widow there to feed you. So he went to Zarephath. Now this was during the, um, the three-year-long drought that had impacted Israel and all the regions around Israel. So they had been going for three years without water, and there was very little food left. So he went to Zarephath, and as he arrived at the gate of the village, he saw a widow gathering sticks, and he asked her, Would you please bring me a little water in a cup? As she was going to get it, he called to her, uh, And bring me a bite of bread, too. But she said, I swear by the Lord your God that I don't have a single piece of bread in the house. And I have only a handful of flour left in the jar and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. And I was just gathering a few sticks to cook this last meal. And then my son and I will die. But Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go ahead and do just what you said, but make a little bread for me first. So <clears throat> then use what, what is left to prepare a meal for you and for, for yourself and for your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. There will always be flour and olive oil. This is the prophet Elijah speaking. There will always be flour and olive oil left in your containers until the time when the Lord sends rain and the crops begin to grow again. So she did as Elijah said. And she and Elijah and her family continued to eat for many days. And there was always enough flour and olive oil left in the containers, just as the Lord had promised through Elijah. You see, what Jesus is highlighting for us here as he tried to illustrate for the Nazarenes so that they could get it, is that this, this widow didn't even believe in God. The widow was not a part of Israel. And so that's why Jesus says that interesting comment, there were plenty of widows in Israel However, God sent Elijah to the widow who lived in Zarephath outside of Sidon. So if, if you didn't quite get that he's here for the poor and the lowly and the outsiders, he is now highlighting that even more. And this is what gives it away, I think, is verse 12. When she says, I swear by the Lord your God, I have no food left in the house. I swear by the Lord your God 
Not my God, your God. Then he goes on to talk about Elisha, who is Elijah's successor. In 2 Kings chapter 5, the story of Naaman. Naaman was this great military leader for the, the nation of Aram, part of what we would know today as Syria. And on one of their excursions into Israel, they had taken a bunch of hostages, um, slaves, turned them into slaves. And so this little slave Jewish girl served as the maid to Naaman's wife. She served in their household. She saw how he suffered from the leprosy that he had. And so he said to, she said to her superior, uh, Naaman's wife, why don't you tell your husband to go to Israel and to seek out the prophet there? She's referring to Elisha because he will heal. He will heal your husband. And so she tells Naaman, Naaman goes and talks to the king. The king says, oh, by all means, go and let me give you this letter. And so it's kind of like a letter of introduction. So Naaman goes to meet the king of Israel, and the king of Israel has no idea what's going on. And, and so as he receives this man, he sees his arch enemy, like the, the lead general from the military of his enemy standing before him, asking to see his prophet, um, he just loses it. And he begins to rip off his clothes. You know, it's a sign of repentance where you rip your clothes, you tear your clothes. So he thinks, we are doomed. This guy, this is, this is a Trojan horse. This is a trick. He's coming in here to take over our nation. What's left of it. And so... Naaman says, no, no, I really want to see the prophet. So Elisha hears secondhand that Naaman is in town looking for him. And so Elisha calls Naaman to come and to see him. So Naaman goes to Elisha's home and he waits outside. And Elisha sends a messenger out to Naaman and says, the prophet says to go to the Jordan River and wash yourself seven times. Well, Naaman goes ballistic. He's not even going to come and meet me. And why the Jordan River, that pathetic, dirty Jewish river? We've got a couple of really fine rivers up in Syria. Those would be better. And so he is just enraged and he is walking out. He is leaving. And his, his associates calm him down and say, maybe you should just try what the king has said. And so he does. And he is cleansed. So when he is standing outside the house, Naaman says this in his anger. I thought he, Elisha, would certainly come out to meet me. He said, I expected him to wave his hand over the leprosy, call on the name of his Lord, 
and then his God would heal me. There's the clue again. His God. His God would heal me. It's not his God yet. By the end of the story, it does become his God. But at this point, it's not his God yet. Your God, the widow says. His God, Naaman says. Now these are people with no special status, no connections to the God of Israel. Elijah and Elisha are agents of healing to them because God wants the people to know that they are to be agents of healing to the outcasts, to the outsiders. Elijah is sent to a woman, a non-Jew, who is also a widow. Elisha encounters a Gentile commanding officer from Syria, no less, a Gentile, who has leprosy and is unclean. Jesus' message has now become all too clear for his hometown audience of the Nazarenes. They will not be first in line. Obviously. They are enraged and they want to stone him to death. What's interesting is to take a look at how that ends in verse 30. They intended to push him over the cliff, but he passed right through the crowd and went on his way. So they're going to stone him and throw him over the cliff. It's a death sentence. But he escapes it by passing through them. Many believe that this story prefigures what Jesus will do at the end of his ministry. Remember, this is at the beginning of his ministry. He is going to enrage people who want him killed, who will be turning him over to be crucified, where he will die on the cross. And then on the third day, he will be raised again from the dead to continue on with his mission, just as Jesus now will continue on with his mission. So we are already being told in Luke's gospel that if you think you can outfox God, you can't. You can't. Because God will reach out to whom God wants to reach out to. And our best bet is to try to grab on, like that woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, to grab on to the hem of his robe and go with him. We're not leading. We're following. Not only do these Nazarenes reject his mission to serve all people, but they also reject his identity, the anointed one with the Holy Spirit. This provocative report of Jesus' ministry in Nazareth prompts a question, I think, for us today. 
Who is the ministry of this church for? Who are we called to serve? Is it me first? Or is it the neediest? Is it the poor and the lowly? The prisoners? The blind, the oppressed? And if we have some sense of, some sort of agreement that it should be for all people, how will we live that out? And if we follow Jesus and live that out, are we ready for some adversity? You see, what Jesus is helping us to understand, I believe, is that we are called on mission with him. But it's his mission. We are followers. And if we follow, we will be challenged. So are you ready? Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of your son. We thank you for the power of the Holy Spirit in his life. We thank you that he has shared that spirit with us in our baptisms. Lord, we thank you that you have given us a purpose, a mission, and in a new identity. Be with us, Lord, as we seek to hear that calling and to live out that calling. Be with us as we are challenged by adversity and help us not to lose faith, but to gain strength in the power of your Holy Spirit. 